Hey, how's it going, everybody? We got something all new for you. It's well, it's kind of new. It's kind of old. It's something that, um, well, it's something that me and a buddy of mine were gonna start about a year ago. But um, well, I, I'm, I, you know, me and calendars. I'm not very good at following them. I don't know when things are and when things is. So, uh, you know, better late than never. Um, I am joined by my friend Ed. How how are you doing today, Ed? Pretty pretty good, sir. Pretty good. And and don't you know? Don't don't be too hard on yourself. Uh, <laughs> stuff stuff gets going, and before you know it, it's eight, ten, twelve months later. It, it happens to all of us. It happens. Yeah. Every I mean, we've, we've all had birthdays. <laughs> Yeah, it's been so. it's been a long time coming here. Um, now, the book we're going to be discussing here, I mean, as if uh, the title of the show didn't tip you off here. Uh, we're talking about something that is a true, you know, hidden gem in the uh, in the comics milieu, the comics industry here. A book that um, really just doesn't get a whole lot of uh, discussion uh, compared to. Yeah, I mean, the Internet has kind of destroyed some words, uh, you know, genius, brilliant hidden gem, you know, things like that. We uh, we have varying uh, ideas on what actually makes up that sort of a thing. And uh, I think today with what we're going to be discussing, we actually have something of a hidden gem here. Of course, the book we're discussing is The Maze Agency by uh, Mike W. Barr and uh, Adam Hughes, uh, to start anyway. And uh, before we get into the first issue here, I'd like to ask you, uh, how did you come about discovering The Maze Agency the first time around? Okay. Um, let, let's let's do a little stage setting here so that I have my built-in excuses for why I was a goober at that point. Uh, at this point in life, I don't have those excuses, but I'll definitely use them then. Um, so we're looking about when I was 10, right around in there. So, you know, I, I was a kid. Um, I used to go to um, a couple local, one in particular, packets that are or wait a minute, uh, Paquette, um, uh, Bodega, I think. There you go. What I, the, yeah, yeah what those are called. I'm sorry. It's, I was going to start again, Googling, but you know, I didn't I'm, know I'm 53, it. so it's, yeah. <laughs> Language is a funny thing over 53 years. Uh, I, I would go down to my local Bodega. I, I just mm-hmm. sound, I, I feel weird saying that word. Um, the corner store. <laughs> okay, yes. And, and oh, here, here's and another, <laughs> another weird word. I would get comics off the spinner rack. So that, you know, if 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 I I'm not done aging myself yet, I'll, I'll just throw out the word spinner rack as to where I bought my books. So um, but this particular uh, place, of course, was very Marvel and uh, and DC heavy. Certainly. But every now and then uh, they would have these other other companies, but they weren't just other companies like, you know, there'd be a Charlton uh, or Carlton, however you say that one. Um There'd be some Dells maybe and, you know, some some books like that. But there were these other companies that would show up that really caught my eye. Mm-hmm. Well, at the time, um, Elementals was something that caught my eye. And another really weird one that uh, actually got turned into a, an animated series for a little while, a little while back called Fish Police, I think. Yeah, John um, Ritter. John Ritter. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. He was the inspector. Um, Inspector Fish? No, I think so. <laughs> Maybe. Was, was it Fish? Inspe- yeah, something <laughs> obvious because uh, it was it was a satirical book. But yeah, mm-hmm. so um, those were catching my eyes, and so I I started actually looking for them when I went and got my usual 
um, Avengers and Avengers adjacent books, because those were the books stepping back a little bit. I originally got into comic books because of my dad. Mm -hmm. He read them. He would pass them on to me when he got done reading them. Very cool. So our books uh, that we that we got were Avengers and any of the characters uh, currently in the lineup that had individual titles. Iron Mm -hmm. Man, Cap, Thor, Mm -hmm. uh, the Hulk. So those were the books mainly that that came into our house. The Defenders, actually, now that I think about it. But um, so, you know, I I had been reading those uh, periodically for a while. They they didn't quite capture my imagination like they used to. So Mm. new things always used to jump out at me. You know, wow, what's this? Flip through it. You know, and um, this this maze maze agency book appeared uh issue six i think issue seven something like that mm-hmm. and i read it um i was already a fan of the little uh digest size prose books uh, like asimov and um, um there was another analog i think was the name of one well i also was familiar with mystery stories as they appeared in ellery queen magazine now mm-hmm. I say that, and actually there's another connection to this book that we'll probably uh, throw out there here a little bit later on, but mm-hmm. I won't I won't go into that here. But uh, those type of magazines. So the mystery um, stories always held my interest. Well, there, there certainly were no comic books like that, but Maze Agency, that, that just sounded interesting to me. Um, flipping through it, there were no, you know, spandexy or big powery eyeball flashing kind of things but the art uh to my very young eye was kind of cool yeah and so i grabbed one and um after my dad read it he really liked it and he kind of helped me remember to get subsequent issues kept me in the habit of buying it very cool couple issues later um i saw an ad for a place that was trying to sell me comic books uh through through the mail um east coast comics uh was Mm -hmm. the name of this particular place and i thought wow man if i can get these books there because you know i i have five six seven uh issue numbers well there's obviously i knew that it started at one and i thought (laughs) well man if i can order them from there that would be really cool so again 11 12 13 uh I wrote on a little uh, letter size notebook pad, right? One sheet, the books mm-hmm. I wanted and the number. I add, I, I put out like like a, a good accountant is supposed to, you know, you put out beside that the, the amount that that issue is <laughs> and subsequently line after line. Then you come down here and you total it, right? And then you mm-hmm. do whatever if there's shipping or they say that there's tax. I don't even imagine they ever thought about taxing at that time. <laughs> Probably not. Like um, you know, and I totaled it and everything. And so I went and um, got in my my sock drawer, which is where I kept my funds at the time. I don't mm-hmm. think anybody does that nowadays, do we? <laughs> Pulled out the money, put some dollar bills in that envelope, got some quarters, nickels and dimes in that envelope. I folded <laughs> the letter so it would hold the money. I put that letter in the envelope and put that puppy in the mail just like that. I love it. <laughs> I, I, and now, you know, you would think, and 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 you're absolutely correct in thinking, but 
three ish, I think, or maybe a month later, three weeks or a month later, I'm on the uh, laying on the couch. Uh, I've been home from school that day because I have a, a a wicked flu going and pounding headache and all this, and I'm just laying there, kind of. My mom's in the kitchen fixing dinner. My dad comes home, having stopped at the post office. Uh, mm-hmm. We we lived in kind of a rural area, so post office is where they did mail back then that way. Gotcha. And uh, he said, Ed, you, you've got this package. And he handed me like a, a manila envelope. Mm-hmm. And I, I wasn't expecting anything. I had no idea. So first thing I did was looked at the uh, mailing label and it said East Coast. I was like, no way. <laughs> and I opened it up and instantly my, my head wasn't congested. I didn't have a headache. My fever was gone. I was <laughs> dancing around in the living room because I got my first mail order comic books. Oh, that's that amazing. was so cool. And so I don't think I've I, ever I don't think I've ever spoke to someone who actually ordered from one uh, of those pages well, before. There, there you go. I'm I'm glad I could be your friend, Chris. <laughs> I you know I I'm, I'm honored to to fill that spot in in your uh, absolutely your particular knowledge of of people. So uh, I mean I, I know like I, I think I think we've all kind of like made the lists. You know, it's like you sure. lay down on the floor in front of the couch and you're making the list and you're, you're and you're doing the accountant thing. And it's like then you turn the page because you're still putting down the books you want. And then you get to the next page and you're still doing it and you total it up and it's like three hundred dollars. <laughs> OK, it's time to put this away. It's yeah, never you're gonna like, happen. oh, no, that won't fly. And I can't <laughs> figure out any less books. So, yeah, I just of course. I won't do it. <laughs> Oh, man, that's awesome. So that was your first time reading the issue we're going to discuss today or the, when you yes. received it. Yeah. And and that was by that time I was, you know, even a couple more issues into the book. So I was probably around nine or ten. Excellent. Um, When I finally got one through four. <laughs> and so actually what I ended up doing is just starting at the beginning and reading through my collection now up to whatever the latest one I had was all within awesome. a day or two. Very, very cool here. And I mean. This is this is a very different sort of comic here. Um, this is not one that uh, this isn't one that young Chris would have bought. Certainly not. Um, this is one that I discovered it much later. I discovered it in probably 2009, 2010 ish. I don't remember because uh, I'm, I tried looking for the original article and it's not there anymore. Uh, the article has been reposted on a different site with a date of like july of this year and i know i didn't discover it in july of this year so <laughs> it was a long time ago it was on uh the old comic should be good blog that was on cbr i don't know if that's still a thing it might be it was i mean it was probably the only reason to ever go to cbr <laughs> it mm-hmm. was uh, where you'd find like the uh the comics legends revealed article every friday um and there was also one called comics you should own written by a fellow named greg burgess or burgess and he would discuss um, he would discuss just really important runs to him, books that he wants other people to experience and read. And I first discovered his work and it was so weird that uh, I discovered it this way. I you know, we all have nightstand reads, right? You know, like those those that pile of books that you want to get to it might be on your nightstand. It might be, you know, on a side table somewhere. It's just that, that pile you need to get to. And back around the time I discovered his um his articles, his columns, I was doing two reading projects. I was going back and forth between uh, the Grant Morrison Doom Patrol, 
and I had read like half of it through trades, and then I finally bought all the singles and was catching up. This is before all the trades came out and were made available. And also, I was finally reading through the Peter David Hulk, which I had only collected sparsely throughout the 90s. And then I, I, you know, I came across a store that was going out of business, and it's like, okay, I will take the Hulk section, <laughs> you know, because they were clearanced out to like nothing. So I'm like, I will take Hulk, all of it, give me it, everything. So I was reading those two stories, and as I go to this site, those are the two books he's talking about, kind of like back and forth. I'm like, okay, this is something I got to keep an eye on here. And sometimes it would be something more mainstream, like a like a DC book, a Marvel book. Sometimes it'd be a New Gods thing. Um, but then you'd get into a hidden gem. You'd get into a book you may not have ever heard of. And as you know, as a fake ass comics historian, I, when I see something I'm not familiar with or something that catches me off guard, it kind of catches me really off guard. It's like I should. How come I never seen this before? And uh, one of those stories was the Maze Agency. And the the way he described the story, I mean, it's not like a huge spoiler filled thing here. It's basically just a this is the kind of stuff you're going to experience in this book. If this is something that sounds like you might dig it, well, pick it up. It's something that you might dig. And uh, I always kind of just logged it in the back of my mind. And I was like, OK, this is this is something totally different from anything I would read, uh, especially, you know, as a as a younger uh, fellow. But uh you know, I thought about things like like powers, you know, powers by Bendis. It's procedural stuff. It's kind of street level. Of course, there is a fantastical element to it. There are heroes and whatnot. Then you think about other things that are more grounded, more street level. And something like Maze Agency was just like the perfect thing for me at that time in my life. And I ran out to uh, the Phoenix area was booming with comic shops at this point. Uh, it is since kind of kind of waned a bit. But uh, back then there were tons like uh, you could you could drive a few miles and you're going to come to a comic store. And I wound up finding the first issue It was the only issue I could find in the whole city. Nobody else had any of it. Wow. And when I yeah, when I asked people about it, I, they looked at me like I had three heads. You know, it was, <laughs> that's how obscure it was. It was like, hey, do you have maze agency? I don't know what that is. OK, OK. Well, I found the first issue and I read it and I thought it was really, really good. And it just really it. it it's one of those things where you like you really like it, but you hate that you liked it because you can't find any more of it. So it's like you're just stuck. And so, you know, I'd pop back over to the to, to Burgess's uh, article and read that a few more times. Like, OK, I got to get uh, a little bit more about this. And over the course of you know the next decade or so, I've been able to collect the entire run. And uh, it's not something that you see in the uh, the back issue bin very often. Um, I found most of them in like used record stores, just places that nobody really cares about what they put there. And um, the thing of it is, I've only read the first couple of issues. And, uh, you know, when you get to be a content creator, is something I talk about a lot. It's something I mentioned probably to the point of parody. You don't have much time for the fun reading anymore. You know, you, everything you're reading is kind of going to a project, a show, a blog post. And so May's Agency kind of just fell off, and it became one of those nightstand reads that just never got read. So here we are finally getting to it, and, you know, after a few episodes, it's going to be brand new to me. <laughs> I didn't get to read any of these, so. Oh, yeah, it, it will. Me, too, because a lot of these I read one time. Sure. Way back, so. Oh, yeah. It'll yeah. be rediscovering it all over again. And yeah, yeah. And we're hoping that through this coverage, maybe some folks out there who've either never heard of this or have maybe heard of it and maybe read it, uh, you know, back in the day, 
maybe you want to give it another shot. Maybe you'll follow along with us here. Maybe you'll be able to, uh, I mean, this is going to be a kind of an interactive show as we uh, work our way through here. So hopefully we'll, uh, we'll get some folks in the maze agency mood, but, uh, you know, before we get into the issue here, um, some tidbits about it here. We did a little bit of research. It's kind of what we do. Now, the Maze Agency, as an entity, as a concept, was originally a six-page Ashcan one-shot by Mike W. Barr. Didn't have Adam Hughes on art. It had Alan Davis on art. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a heck of a pedigree, right? Um, yeah. Now, this was called The Mile High Corpse, and this was uh, written and created in 1986. And... Uh, wasn't wasn't like published the way that we think of things being published nowadays. This was basically just a like a letter of intent in in sequential art form, right? This was basically a pitch that Barr was hoping to use to shop the book around. Now, this story, The Mile High Corpse, would would finally appear in print in Innovations Maze Agency Special Number One in 1990. We're doing that. How do how are we saying this? Comico or Comico? How do how do we say that? I've- I believe it's pronounced Kamiko. Kamiko. Okay, I was wrong on that. Yeah, to be honest. (laughs) So uh, Kamiko is the uh, company that is publishing it right now, where we are in the coverage here. But it will eventually go to innovation. And I don't think it stops in innovation. I think it goes somewhere else after that, too. But uh, we'll get there when we get there. Now, this came as like a, if you remember those DC comics with the preview pullouts back in the early 80s or the bonus books right around uh, the time of uh, post-crisis, similar to that. Now, this story popped in there. It even had its own indicia, you know, Um, and uh, this was the indicia actually listed it as being the Maze Agency Volume 2 Number Zero Special Issue, which that's a mouthful and it's kind of weird. Um, And again, you know, we won't be covering the story just yet. but we will read a little bit from the new forward that Mike W. Barr wrote for this story when it was finally published. He dated it September the 9th of 1989. And he explains here that during the summer of 1986, he began to prepare for this project in earnest. Now, in creating the number zero ash can, as we might call it, he sought to A, have something tangible to show prospective publishers, and also B, to have a physical thing that he could copyright. And he did so because, uh, well, he had creations stolen out from under him before and uh, didn't want this to be one of those. Well, you, uh, you know, let, let, let's let's think for a minute that running around with Alan Davis art in your back pocket is not <laughs> a bad way to go. That's a true statement. You know, that's that like a true statement. <laughs> wow. I, today it would be I, I, I don't know. Um back during your golden age chris it would have been having jim lee art in your back pocket yes um <laughs> I, i'm not really sure yeah. nowadays who it would be but yeah like a maybe a jason fabic or uh pepe Larraz or something but yeah okay, yeah yeah you know oh i i just i have this i'm i'm trying to get somebody to publish it and here mm. is this art it's like what yeah. nobody wants this yeah i it that's hard for me to believe that it's like Alan Davis and people are like, yeah. eh, you know, we'll, we'll see. We'll, I'll have my people call your people. Exactly. I mean, that's it's 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 almost unbelievable. I mean, yeah. Alan Davis during 1986, 1987. Oh, man, forget about it. Yeah. <laughs> now, as mentioned, you know, Alan Davis was the artist here and uh, they were collaborators on Batman and the Outsiders uh, during, uh, you know, the time leading up to this. 
Now, at this time, though, they were off Batman and the Outsiders, and they were actually working together on detective comics. Um, I believe this was probably around Batman year two uh, before uh, McFarlane came in. Um, I believe Alan Davis did. I can't remember if Alan Davis came in after McFarlane left or if McFarlane came in after Davis left. It was one or the other. It was one or the other. Um, Now, he says that uh, they were uh, lifting Detective Comics out of a longtime sales doldrum, which, well, yeah, probably, right? I mean, Detective was uh, was kind of uh, of weak at that uh, before that, right? Now, he credits Alan Davis with creating Jen's, uh, Jen, you know, from the Maze Agency, of course, her iconic hairstyle. Now, this is weird here. They call it a forelock that she has here. Um, I look at it and I say, like, bangs. Okay. <laughs> is there now, a difference? You say that, and I showed this to my wife, and uh-huh. she said, yeah, absolutely. That's a forelock. And I'm like, what? why is it <laughs> not what bangs? That is. <laughs> she said, it's a forelock. I said, okay, then well, there we go. I, I will trust her for sure I, more I than I trust me. No, yeah, I I don't know. I and you know at, at this time in my life, if if I took a snapshot of of my forehead, top of my, you would see that a forelock is the very farthest thing from my mind. No pun intended. <laughs> at this point, so I'm like, you know, I'll bow to just about anybody for having superior knowledge of what a forelock is supposed to be. I'm so. right there. Get you. Now, uh, in addition to Alan Davis here, we've got uh, we've got Todd Klein uh, recruited for logo and letter design here. Um, Todd Klein, I mean, prolific, uh, you know, a logo creator. And uh, if you haven't seen the Maze Agency logo, it's really cool because it's, you know, the letters are all connected and there's a literal maze going through the word maze, which that's pretty cool. Barr actually says that, as far as he knows, it's the first logo in comics to also be a functional game unto itself. So that's that's pretty interesting. I, I wonder. I, I should have looked at more than one issue here. I wonder if it changes as it uh, as it yeah, goes. Yeah, off the top of my head, yeah, I'm I'm not sure. Actually, I'm I'm sitting here as you're saying it, trying to see if I can make my <laughs> way through the maze. But I'll I'll do that later. You you may well be able to go through all the letters through the maze. That's I didn't even pay attention to that. Yeah, that's really really cool. Um, now the maze agency number zero Ashcan would get mentioned in letters pages, and a bar would suggest that it was for a time one of the most famous unpublished stories in comics, and so. It would finally see widespread, uh, relatively speaking, widespread print in 1990. But, of course, we will get there. First, let's go back to Barr shopping this sucker around. Now, he states in a 1988 interview that Kamiko? Kamiko. Kamiko, yes. I'm trying to, like, say Kaliko. My English says that that's Kamiko. I mean, come on. (laughs) That's what I'm thinking, too. Kamiko. But I've. Uh, somewhere in 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 the the back part of the brain, I have heard mm-hmm. maybe an interview with uh, Tom Mason, maybe or uh, somebody that was directly connected, and they said that it's uh, they intended it to be pronounced Kamiko, if 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 I recall correctly. I I bet you're right. I mean, so, that's a that, that that's just so hard for me to say. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard is, for me to say is, a lot of words though. In fairness, and and good throwback <laughs> there with Calico. That's, yes. yeah, that's a good. Okay. That's what's going through my mind. Like yeah. uh, the, the hamsters on the wheel trying to get me to, to say it right here. Now, Kamiko made him the best offer and also appeared to be the most genuine in regard to wanting to diversify their line to include different genres like mysteries. Now, unfortunately, by the time all the pieces fell into place, Alan Davis was busy doing other stuff. He had signed on to other commitments so he could not join Barr. 
in uh, his his Kamiko venture. Uh, now, Barr and Kamiko would uh, then put out feelers among the creative community in order to find a replacement for Davis, which, I mean, it's Alan Davis. It's not yeah. an easy task. <laughs> you know? um, now, after a few near misses, there was a relative unknown picked, a young Adam Hughes. Now, Barr says that Adam is extremely talented and is getting better as he goes on. His first issue work was very good. But I've seen his work for issue four, and it makes number one look like the work of an amateur. Now, uh, what did you think upon seeing Adam Hughes' work uh, initially and, again, when you read this one for the show? Now, initially, um, I was too young, really, to have much um, much discernment in the art. Mm-hmm. Um, I can tell you that at that time, someone like a, um, let's say, Bill Sienkiewicz, um, mm-hmm. He would have put me off. I just would not have okay. found that art, his art, very appealing, mm-hmm. um, particularly during his, say, um, uh, Demon Bear time Mutants, yeah. that, mm-hmm. when he was using that style. Uh, but Adam Hughes, I could make out everything. It was clear. It looked like what it was supposed to be. Right. People, mm-hmm. car, background. <laughs> Oh, and let's just say for the uh, listening audience, if you haven't read this book, you should, because you get to see someone do background, which uh, is is a dying (laughs) art uh, in in a lot of art nowadays. Uh, Building with windows if they're on the street. Yeah. okay, I won't (laughs) go into that. But um, so, yeah, everything was was what it was supposed to be. Now, Mm -hmm. now, as I sat and read this, um, when did I read this? Like just a couple of days ago, um, it. I, I enjoy the art and to say that, you know, oh, uh, this this artist, whomever it may be, gets noticeably better. I was kind of surprised because I didn't find any aspect of what he did in this book, particularly off putting that I'm thinking, Same here. you know, I can't wait until he gets his feet under him. I, so yeah. I'm I'm not sure what. Um, Mr. Barr, you know, maybe he was looking for a particular quality and he was trying to direct Hughes to get there and he just hadn't gotten there yet. But for me, just reading this and the art, I I had no problem with it at all. Yeah, same here. Maybe it was a maybe it's a storytelling thing. Maybe it it's could uh, be. yeah. Yeah, maybe it's progressive action. Uh, who knows? But I mean, yeah, Adam Hughes is, is really good. I, I first saw his work probably JLI. I'm thinking probably okay. Justice League. Uh, yeah, because I know uh, our characters from the book we're reading now actually show up in a cameo on a Kui 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 in right. one of the issues of JLI. So right. uh, that's uh, yeah, that's the first time I that, that was one of the connections I was able to make to this series. And uh, yeah, Adam Hughes is just a really, really fun artist. Um, now, something about this book here, it it engages in something called the fair play storytelling, which. I'm guessing is actually a term as it pertains to mystery fiction, right? I, I uh, we'll go with that. Yes, yes we will say that. It's not right. something I've ever heard of before, but since Barr uses it, and Barr is clearly a student of um of mystery fiction here and a huge devotee of uh, the art form, he calls it fair play storytelling. And in it, he claims that most, but not all of the cases that the maze agency tackles are going to be delivered to the reader in a way where they ought to have enough information by the end of the story to solve it before the book does. Now, in the article, scoping out the maze agency, colon, 
Kamiko's New Who Done It by Dennis Sellers. This appeared in Amazing Heroes issue 154, cover dated December 1st, 1988. Mike Barr also says the following: The Maze Agency is an intellectual who done it. Each each issue will present a murder mystery that offers readers a chance to solve the case along with the main characters if they catch on to the clues. So, one last thing before we get into the issue. Uh, what do you say, folks? You think you can solve this one before Jen, Gabe, Ed, and Chris do? Huh, you might have a chance to do so as we work our way through here. And um, maybe not for this issue, <laughs> to be completely honest. But uh, we'll, we'll take it as it comes. With all the pre-ramble out of the way, let's, uh, let's get into the issue here. This is... Maze Agency number one had a December 1988 cover date. The story is called The Adventure of the Rogues Gallery. Of course, written by Mike W. Barr, pencils Adam Hughes, inks Rick Magyar, letters Deborah Marx, colors Julia Lacamont, maybe? I don't know. Okay. Yeah, close enough. Edits Michael Yuri from Kamiko, the comics company. Cover price $1.95 US, $2.50 in Canada. Now, before we get into the story, uh, how do you like this cover? It it's it's pretty straightforward. Um, it's not the type of cover that really gives you, I thought, too much of what's going on in the story. Yeah. Um, although I will say, in its defense, it is the first cover of the first Certainly. issue. So um, I do like that they have a maze in the background, That's alluding true. to the the title. So. Um, other than that, the, the characters, I mean, as you know, as I said, for Adam Hughes, they look like definitely, first of all, a female and a male. That's um, true. The female is relatively attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, contemporarily, you know, I mean, everything I think is 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 solid. It doesn't stand out for me, good or bad. Certainly, certainly. Now, I mean, one of the things I mean, the show here is called Maze Lighting. So uh, we're kind of. One of the things you hear about Maze Agency, when Maze Agency comes up, people will sometimes compare it to a program that was on television during the uh, mid to late 1980s called Moonlighting. Do you have any familiarity with Moonlighting before we move on? I, I religiously watched that. Um, that that was uh, a uh, an, an actor, uh, for those that you might not know, uh, that is now famous for a uh, a movie at the Nakajima Plaza, I believe it was. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> I, I believe it's what he is 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 better known for at this that, point. That Christmas movie, right? Yes, the Christmas one. <laughs> um, and I think if you look at his uh, his background, I believe that Moonlighting was his first television series. Really? Okay. Um, yeah, this is of course you know Bruce Willis, Sybil Shepherd, Moonlighting. Um, I was. Well, this was, what, 1987? I was seven years old. I'm sure I saw it. Um, You know, the theme song is just, you know, you know the theme song when you hear it. Um, But now, if you were, I mean, how accurate is the comparison between a maze agency and a moonlight? Well, I mean, it's there. You know, Mm -hmm. you're you're talking about a, um, a, the the bi-gender couple, one male, one Mm -hmm. female. Um, it, it has that similarity. Uh, the the female is the more practiced of the uh, of the detectives. Mm-hmm. Um, I think once you get to the male part of the couple, the comparison starts to to be Breakdown, a little bit huh? thinner between the yeah. two. 
Um, so, but in in broad strokes, okay, I could see that. Mm-hmm. I don't know that you can necessarily see it enough, really, to say that. Hey, whichever came later must have used the former for I that sure. I don't know that you could really go that far about it because mm-hmm. the, it, it's an obvious thing to me, um, sure. particularly at the time. You know, absolutely in the eighties, if you have a female lead. Uh, well, that will never work in in the day and age of that time. You have to have a male character there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, sure. you know that that formulae uh, is going to to play out the same regardless. So, yeah, yeah it compares, but I don't know how directly. Mm-hmm. Um, what what is it? I I don't think there's a um there's a causality. There's a whatever the other word is, but one looks like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was going to say you're you're a psychologist, right? You know those big words. Working I, on it. Working on yeah, it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not. Because I, I look at Jen, and I mean, I can certainly see Sybil Shepherd there. Sure. Yeah. But uh, yeah, when you look at Gabe, that's that's uh, more Rick Moranis than uh, Bruce Willis. <laughs> oh, good. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, Rick Moranis is cool and all, but uh, it's it's not Bruce Willis for sure. <laughs> but uh, let's get on in. Let's get on in here. Now, our story, it opens at the Blakemore Gallery. We meet an artist, an artist even, named Raul Roe Trask, and he's getting ready for his first art show in a decade. Now, Roe is a bit concerned as to how the critics are going to receive his current work. It's a little different than what he had before he disappeared. Uh, gallery owner Wynn Blakemore, nah, he's not too concerned. Just then, the chat's interrupted by Blakemore's assistant, Jorking, who has come with some dire news indeed. Now, it would appear as though there's an art thief named The Rogue, and, uh, well, he's been gone for a while too, but now he's back. And, as luck would have it, he selected Rose's work to be the next exhibit in his Rogue's gallery. Which is to say, the rogue wrote a letter to that effect, basically, um, complete with a cute little drawing of a man in a top hat, which is adorable. Um, now, let's say let's let's put uh, is this a red herring that we're getting here or is this uh, some actual well, actual information? We got the rogue. We got Roe, the rogue and Roe. Both of them have been gone for a decade and now they're both back. Huh, could, what say you? I, I say circumstantial. <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll plead circumstantial at this point and we'll have to uh, yes you're right right off the bat that kind of jumps out at you but mm-hmm. let's you know we've got another i don't know 15 to 20 pages so let's Shoot. let's see how it shakes out yeah, let's just we're gonna flip over open our little notebook we'll jot it in there exactly exactly <laughs> now next thing we know Rowan and win are showing this letter to Jennifer Mays, M-A-Y-S, not Mays as in like walking through, but sounds the same phonetically, right? Now, uh, she, of course, is the owner operator of the Mays Agency private investigation firm. And she's quite interested in this case as, you know, it is the first appearance of the rogue in 10 years. Plus, well, she's intrigued that this is the first time the baddie has ever like given the target advance notice. It's like Babe Ruth pointing out his shot here <laughs> that he was going to get jacked. And uh, heck, the rogue even sent a notice to the newspapers in the area to announce that he's back and he's ready to steal this art. So, I mean, he's he's not exactly being shy about it. And Roe, of course, the artist, he is quite worried. Jen, not so worried. After all, the agency is more than capable of handling gallery security. 
Now, she calls into her contact and police records to try to get an entire history of the rogue. Unfortunately for her, the computers are down, and it's going to be several hours before they're back up. Now, Jen pauses, and uh, she does something pretty cool here. She just, like, pretends that she got the answer she wanted. She's like, yeah, thanks. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting that data within an hour, you know, trying to keep the client on the hook here. Really, really good stuff. Now, uh, Wynn thanks Jen for her help and suggests that uh, you know, maybe Roe is overreacting the th- to the to this threat a little bit. You think he might be acting. Maybe he's putting on a show for the uh, for the detective. Could be, could be. Now, you know, something I noticed about uh, Jennifer, Mm -hmm. um, she and her agency really seem to be set up. Yeah. And that, you know, I I know that everybody, um, all aspects of a story aren't necessarily going to start with the first issue of a book. But um, when I was a kid, uh, who knows what I thought? I I can't (laughs) even remember that. But today, you know, reading this, that, that really struck me is that we are definitely jumping into her career as a detective midstream oh for sure for sure yeah and there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of story bits popping in even even in this very issue that are going to really speak to that it's it's you know if we talk about um you know how, how do you introduce a concept right 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 you could do something where it is very much like you drop somebody in the middle of nowhere in the middle of a story and it's like you'll get it eventually or you can go with the, okay, well, this is step one, step two, step three, and okay, now you know everything. Or you can do something in between. And I think this is a really, uh, really good way of doing it here because we don't need to know everything yet. True, and true. as we start to get to know it, it, it's like we're getting more and more comfortable with the character. It's like we're becoming more acquainted with uh, with this world and the, and the people in it. So, yeah, your, your point is, is definitely well taken here. It's Definitely, she is established. She is set up, and uh, it will eventually. We'll eventually find out how. And you know, as someone who's never read past the first few issues, I'm looking forward to that. Certainly, uh, yeah. Issues. Now, once they're gone, Jen makes a phone call to the other half of our main cast. This is Gabriel Webb, the uh, you know the Bruce Willis or the Rick Moranis. Rick Moranis. Um, <laughs> I, I can't get that. That vision out of my head now. I, I want to see him running, kind of hunched over across the street, sniffing at things, and you know that's <laughs> and pricking his finger and dripping the blood into a plant. And ask, oh, there we go. We're asking people, are you the key master? Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> calling everybody Aubrey one, Aubrey two. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. You you guys will get that eventually, don't you know? Yes. Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. This is where we stop and say, um, look it up. So. Yes, please. Google it. Google it. Google Little Shop. Um, now, Gabriel Webb is a big fan of detective fiction. He's also a would-be mystery writer in his own right. Perhaps, um, I don't want to say author insert because that's not fair, but maybe this is some of um, Mike W. Barr's hopes as to what he was going to uh, give to fiction, right? Could maybe be, this, right. Maybe this is a little bit of that is going into the Gabriel Webb character. Now, he's currently enjoying himself a bowl of something, maybe soup, maybe cereal, I don't know, uh, while watching a Charlie Chan mystery on the tube. You, you ever watch a Charlie Chan? Uh, it's been quite a while, but yes, Charlie Chan and the Chan clan or something mm-hmm. like that. Yes, I, I have seen that. 
maybe one whole movie over my whole life between various <laughs> sit down and watch parts. Yeah. Yeah. Those I'm a fan of black and white, uh, films and stuff, but, uh, some are a little harder to watch than others, you know, particularly the lens with which you view them through. They, uh, yeah, they, they become perhaps more difficult. It's true. Now, uh, she tells uh, Gabe that the rogue is back and she asks for his help. And of course, he is more than excited to be taking part in such a potentially high profile case. Not because he necessarily wants to be a detective, though, but he's trying to up his value and name value in order to get himself a book deal. And, well, um, we look over to the word processor and uh, which is, you know, kind of like a computer back in the day. Um we find out the book that he's working on. We get the title of it, and it is uh, it's something. Bloody Trail Leads to Mad Lesbian Killer. Can't you see that on a marquee? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm not sure in the best part of town, but yes, yes, I can envision it on a marquee. That's like one of those 25-cent specials. Oh, wow, yeah. Now, we jump ahead to the afternoon, and uh, Jen is meeting with Ro and Wynn again. This time, they're at the gallery. Now, she's wearing, it's kind of cute here. She's wearing a classic detective getup, complete with a fedora or whatever we call those hats. Yes, killer hat. Oh, totally, totally. She's like, it's like Dick Tracy, kind of. It's interesting. Now, she tells Ro that she's assigned one single security guard to the detail here, um, but is also hooking up a bunch of cameras. These are the uh, the highfalutin Argus video cam system, and she claims that this thing is worth more than a dozen men. Now, using the rogue's own M.O., Jen posits that this should be more than enough to scare him off. You see, uh, going through his uh, dossier here, she knows that he's never shown signs of violence before, so she doesn't think anybody's in necessarily any physical danger. I mean, all he wants is to steal stuff. Now, just then, Clarissa White Morgan appears. She is Rose's ex-wife, though uh, we might mistake her for his mother. Or uh, mistake her for Saturnine. Um, <laughs> it's also true. Did, did you notice it? Yeah. OK. So. <laughs> that was the nod to Alan Davis, probably. For, wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He probably designed her and uh, Adam Hughes just took off and ran with that. It's wow. true. Now, Roe assumes that she's here for some back alimony, and she assures him that, no, that's not the case at all. But the couple, they, they walk away, to, they do a walk and talk, right? And they continue that chat outside of our earshot, so we don't know what they're talking about. Jen creeps around the corner where she finds Gabe admiring some modern art. And, of course, modern art is, um, you know, splatters of paint, right? That's kind of the, the, the shorthand for modern art. And... Um, of course, Gabe gives the old, my three-year-old niece could draw this sort of response. And uh, Jen, she actually calls it out for being a trope even back then. She's like, <laughs> okay, you're being obvious. Stop it. Uh, Gabe asks Jen if she wants to go grab some dinner, but, you know, she's busy. With the gallery opening, she's got stuff to do. She invites Gabe to be her escort for the event, though. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe they'll, they'll grab some grub afterwards. She then hops into a cab to head back to the office. I, I got a question for you. Why was Gabe here at all? <laughs> um, yeah, um, some, to make fun of art. I don't, yeah, some sort of backup or something. Yeah, I, I guess that really he didn't need to be. So I'm not, you know, he didn't do anything didn't as do far anything. as the story. They, 
they could have talked over the phone. I, I uh, yeah. I, I hope she gave him his cab fare back or something. It's, it's just a real waste of his time. <laughs> it's very weird. Anyway, from here, we jump to the evening, and uh, Gabe and Jen, they are dressed to the nines as they enter the gallery. Jen compliments Gabe on his tux, to which he gives the old, you know, ah, this old thing sort of response, while also hiding the rental coupon behind his back, (laughs) which is classic. Uh, We jump ahead to the show. Raul Trask, uh, he welcomes everyone to his exhibit and is met by a round of applause. But then, record scratch, ex-wife Clarissa, who is also called Clarice and Claire, which is a little bit confusing, um, returns to the story and, well, she's got an announcement to make. Uh, you're, if you remember a few pages ago, Roe was behind on his alimony payments. Even you know, even though he kind of looks like a disheveled slob, whereas Clarice uh, is clad in some very sophisticated duds, you figure she'd be giving him money, right? Uh, we don't know the, the ins and outs of their relationship, but he looks like he could use the money more than she does. Um, now, anyway, in any event, she's got some paperwork which says that she is entitled to all of Ro's art until he gets current. And Ro freaks out, and um, he does the thing that I think a lot of us would like to do. He just tears up the legal docs, and, I mean, that, that makes it go away, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I, I'll, I'll just step out there and say as uh, a uh, – working individual that has had to go through the um, child support system to pay into Mm -hmm. the system. Um, I, I felt uh, his frustration several times. I I didn't handle it this way, but, but (laughs) I I felt that frustration. There you go. If if only you had the paper, you could just physically tear up. Oh, wow. You know, (laughs) the struggle is real um, is, uh, is all I'll say. Now, she claims that she spent most of their marriage working so that he can afford all of his art supplies and whatnot. And so she's more than entitled to enjoy some of his current success. Wynn, the owner of a Blakemore uh, gallery, he steps in and he tells them both that this is not the place to be having this conversation. And maybe they should table it until the morning. So it looks like they're going to be having a legal breakfast the next day. It's like, OK, let's have breakfast in the morning. It's very... <laughs> Very nonchalant and casual. Um, Now, Gabe and Jen watch this play out. Jen says that uh, seeing two former lovers quarrel so violently reminds her of her parents. So uh, we're getting some background here. Right. A little bit of insight there. Yeah. Now, she doesn't get all that long to reflect, though, because Roe is uh, quickly in her face to ensure that she witnessed Claire threatening him. And Jen's like, uh, well, uh, not so fast. Uh, Claire isn't really threatening you, but uh, is rather uh, attempting to exercise her legal rights to your work. She ain't doing anything illegal. She ain't doing anything violent. She ain't doing anything threatening. Wynn then steps in once again to settle Rose tea kettle, and uh, he says that they'll chat up his lawyer the next day and everything will work out fine. Now, we wrap up the evening with Jen assigning a man named McDonald to overnight security detail. This is their one guy. And uh, she tells him to guard the paintings with his life, which seems a little bit extreme, but um, okay, I guess. And and the art, I mean, the art isn't very good. 
Uh, if we're being honest here, the art is pretty rotten. Yeah, yeah. You you can see if you look at the art and look at the way he's dressed and look at the art and look. The, it's like yeah, there's a there's a commonality there. One <laughs> one one is directly causative of the other in this case. It's, it's yeah. very true. It's very true. Now from here, Gabe and Jen they hit the town for some dinner and dancing, and they dine at the Blue Ruby, which. We are. We learn is actually an establishment that Jen owns. Now she claims to use it as a tax shelter and uh, says she bought it after cracking her first big case. So there's a little bit more background, um, and maybe she'll tell us about that someday. So I think this was a pretty big moment here, where uh, you know just another another line is uh, is just being drawn under Jen here in that she is not just successful; she's really successful huh mm-hmm. yeah so this is uh interesting and she does promise that maybe she'll tell us sometime now after the date gabe tells t- i'm sorry gabe takes jen home and asks if uh hey maybe maybe i come inside maybe i can join you she's like nah nah she declines saying that uh things might be moving a little bit too quickly she then alludes to someone named Arthur, who i'm assuming we'll learn more about as we make our way through the series Anyway, they kiss goodnight, and then Gabe heads home to take a cold shower, I would assume. Now, we shift back over to the late shift at the Blakemore, where poor McDonald is pouring another cup of coffee just to try to keep awake. But then, the lights go out. McD draws his pistol and heads out to investigate the situation. Only he winds up getting shot several times about the chest and the side of the head. He hits the ground. However, before he loses consciousness, he does tap the call button on his walkie. And the time of this call is 4.12 a.m. Jen gets the call that her man was shot and taken to the hospital, and she immediately calls Gabe to tell him that it uh, well, looks like the rogue struck. But here's the thing. Here's the interesting thing. The rogue didn't actually steal any paintings. Instead, it would appear as though he only stole the frames. So, huh, what what are your thoughts on this? Well, initially, my thoughts were, hmm, that's weird. <laughs> uh, but, you know, some, some things are, are kind of standing out. Um, <laughs> the rogue is nonviolent. That's what we heard. Or, or you know, so, so everybody said, or, you know, yeah. so the, the, the uh, profile indicates. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think the, the man McDonald may, disagree with that <laughs> you know if it turned out that that was the rogue and and you know we'll, sure. we'll assume that that was and and so it's like well that seemed pretty violent and yeah. then uh, there's no paintings just the frames of the paintings missing mm-hmm. now i had thoughts uh, they they weren't necessarily connected as to why this particular thing occurred and it turns out as as part of the overall um, solve for the whodunit, I was correct, mm-hmm. but I wasn't necessarily correct in in connecting any pieces. Gotcha. Just gotcha. why this particular thing was done here, because to me, that is exactly what what it it shouted. You know, mm-hmm. what turned out to be the truth is exactly what this looked like, and I was like, oh well. You know, why else would they do that unless and so, yeah, Um, otherwise, honestly, throughout the whole thing, I really didn't put very many of these pieces together. 
Mm-hmm. Maybe that's me. I, I don't know. But no, I was just gonna say. I mean, every time I try to like try to do like a mystery program or a mystery story, I, all I, all I am is disappointed that I don't get it. You uh, yeah, know? It's, you know, it's like well, how, did I, how did I miss obvious, that? But, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a. Uh, I, I just always I, I miss some of the detail. I, like I see details where there were none. You know, anybody who's listened to X-Lapse will know that I go off on symbolism that doesn't exist. But when there there actually is something to follow, I miss it. It's totally over my head. Yeah. <laughs> but we return to the Blakemore here. And uh, Jen and Gabe, they are uh, they're arriving and they're met by a Lieutenant Bliss and a Sergeant Simons. Now, they, they're the actual police on the case. Of course, Jen is a PI. Gabe is her associate. Gabe suggests that while he doesn't consider the stuff on the wall art... He thinks the robbery is, you know, the robbery is a work of art, that is. Bliss ain't feeling it. Jen asks why the police didn't take the rogue's threat seriously before. I mean, I mean, he did announce it, right? He said it in the newspaper. I'm in going to rob. Yeah, there you go. Yes. Come on. <laughs> I'm going to rob this gallery on this night. Um, now, Miss Bliss says that, uh, well, they thought it was just a publicity stunt, which, yeah, I guess I can appreciate that. Um I mean, what kind of buffoonish thief announces that they're going to strike somewhere uh, if they're not looking to drum up a little bit of attention? Now, before the officers briefly part company with our heroes, Jen congratulates them both on their promotions. They thank her, but they say that they're not happy about the circumstances surrounding those promotions, and it has something to do with the aforementioned Arthur, and uh, we'll probably find out later on. And they are speaking of him in the past tense. So uh, we might assume that uh, we'll get there another time. Uh, also present at the gallery are Wynne, Roe, and Claire. And uh, the only one who looks even a little bit troubled is Roe. Claire is cool. Wynne is like, whatever. Roe is, you know, chomping on his nails here. Uh, Gabe asks an officer how this attempted murderer and frame thief got inside the gallery without triggering the alarm. Well, we learned that the power cable was cut. And the bed, the bed he entered just using some keys that belonged to Mr. Jorkins. And if you remember, that is Wynn's assistant. Now, the weapon used to shoot poor McDonald was a 45 automatic. Sergeant Simons walks Jerk, Jorkins, Jorkins, no, Jorkins, up to Jen and Bliss for some questioning. Jen confirms that one of Jorkins' jobs is authenticating paintings for Wynn Blakemore. And yeah, he does that. But he also has some hand framing. He does. Uh, he engages in hand framing of some of the pieces that come in. But he suggests that the frames themselves have little to no actual value. He also states that uh, you know these things, while they're not valuable, they're they're intricate. You know, they're they're placed on here with care. So it would take a thief a real long time to unframe all of these paintings without damaging the uh, the actual canvases here. And considering that the paintings don't appear to be damaged. It looks like this was done with care, which would, again, take a lot of time. Jen asked Jorkins to look at the paintings that uh, were left on the wall for for authentication purposes. Jorkins takes a look and, yeah, these are the same paintings he'd framed just two weeks prior. He then sheepishly asks to have his keys back. Huh. Now, uh, McDonald's walkie is then entered into our evidence, and the time on it still shows 4.12 a.m., we learn that the police arrived at the gallery only three minutes later at 4.15 a.m. And while we readers know that McDonald was shot at 4.12, our heroes do not. 
For all they know, he was shot any time after the showing and just regained consciousness briefly at 412. So their time, their frame, the time frame is a lot different than ours. Now, we jump ahead a bit to Jen and Gabe catching a cab to go visit McDonald in the hospital. Gabe claims to have a theory, only we don't get to hear it just yet. At the hospital, we see McDonald and he's in critical condition. His wife asks Jen about the med- about what medical benefits she offers, to which Jen's like, nah, you're all covered. I got you covered. You're good. Now, outside the room, Gabe, <laughs> Gabe sneaks McDonald's son either a piece of candy or a small sausage. I, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll go with the piece of candy, but, but <laughs> I will leave room that it could have been a piece of pocket sausage. Yeah. And, <laughs> and no, people, it's not what you think. So don't even go there. It's not a euphemism. This is a, no. and a sausage, you know. Uh, now, next, Gabe and Jen chat up a doctor to inquire about whether or not it's possible that McDonald was shot earlier that night and maybe just regained consciousness to trigger the alarm. The doc's like, what do I know? It, it's certainly possible, which is really no help. Um, <laughs> Thanks, doc, for nothing, but okay. Yeah. Now, he says the only way they'll know for sure is, duh, if McDonald wakes up and tells them. Now, I mean, neither of us are medical doctors, and we could have told you that, Jen, and we wouldn't have charged you for it either. Um, we jump ahead to later that afternoon. We rejoin our heroes in a cab headed to a shady part of town. It's a Greenwich Village, but it's rendered to look pretty shady. I, I mean, Greenwich Village is uh, it's weird, but I don't know that it's this uh, kind of uh, uh, gross. Yeah, <laughs> what, it looks say you? A, a little bit more run down than I thought that uh, even in the mid to late 80s, 80s the Greenwich yeah. Village was. And something here as they're passing this uh, garage door, mm-hmm. the number 85 is painted on there. Yeah, I wonder if they're alluding to the fact that this is occurring in 1985 and not 88 when the book was printed. Oh, you know that might be a that might be a you might be onto something there. Yeah, there, there's yeah. nothing else really that is said or that we see or any any you know TV news or really sure. newspapers other than what's occurring to really give us. Well, there was a newspaper at the beginning, wasn't there? Um. I don't know that we actually saw it, though. Any. Yeah, it's there. Yeah, you can't make out the date. Um, so I just wonder, otherwise, why would they take the time to throw in a panel that had a big 85 graffitied on something? That is a very interesting point. Yeah. Why? Why draw attention to that if it doesn't mean nothing? Yeah. Yeah. So um, but otherwise, yeah, this is a um, maybe this is a, a uh, the the. Greenwich Village from where uh, Saturnine is. And so that's true. It's otherworld. Yeah. yeah, We're in that same dimension (laughs) there and we just don't realize it's all all the same. I think we'll go with that. Now, uh, now Jen is wondering about how much time the thief had to work those frames off the paintings. Of course, Jorkin said it would take a lot of time to do it with such, you know, care. Uh, Gabe suggests that uh, due to the M.O. at play here, they might not be dealing with the rogue. Yeah, of course, we mentioned the rogue is, as far as we know, a nonviolent offender. And he wonders if maybe somebody's just really trying hard to make it look as though it was the rogue. Maybe they don't know what the police and what the PIs know about the rogue, and uh, they're trying to do a little frame job here. Uh, no pun intended. Now, <laughs> now, Jen takes this under advisement. 
But for now, they've got another potential lead they need to follow. And um, (laughs) this is where um, it gets a little convenient. Um, Yeah. Just a little bit. I mean, it facilitates the story being told, but it is kind of out of nowhere. Uh, Jen knows of an art forger named Dauber Marx, uh, who might be able to point them in the direction of someone who can duplicate Rose's style. So they go to his ramshackle warehouse abode. They hit the buzzer, but Marx does not answer. And so Jen picks the lock to get them both inside. And she assumes yeah, he's an artist, right? Uh, artists are weird. Maybe he's just asleep. It's the middle of the day. Who knows? Now, once inside, our heroes are shot at by an unseen assailant down a hallway. I mean, well, we see them. We just don't know who they might be. You know, we see a body, basically. Anyway, the shooter is able to get away. Jen and Gabe head into the next room where they find old Dauber's been shot to death. And also, the rogue, the rogue's a cute little calling card has been left next to him. It's, it's adorable. It's a little little secret agent man there. It's really uh, cool. Looks like the little Monopoly dude. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? Yeah, with the top hat. and the, yep. what, what I, I'm sure he has a name. But yeah, that, that little dude with the glasses. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. With, and an R on the card. Yes. The little Monopoly with dude the, and an R on the card. With his R card. Now, before we know it, Lieutenant Bliss has arrived with the police and the EMTs. Now, Jen fudges the truth a little bit, claiming that she only busted into the place after hearing shots fired. Why they were in Greenwich Village? Eh, We don't need to worry about that. Uh, Bliss confirms that ballistics have deduced that the bullets at the scene were were from the same gun that shot McDonald. Now, Bliss wonders why some forger would be wrapped up in this situation when, as far as they know, there are no forgeries involved here. Jen says, uh, well, Gabe's got a theory. But Bliss ain't interested in theories. It's uh, basically proof or get the hell out. Uh, just then, Jen's beeper goes off, which is a thing that we used to uh, have on our waists. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so K- people kids, that was before cell phones, that, the yes. beeper. That, yeah. And, you know, in a way they were convenient, but mm-hmm. then you had to try to find a daggone phone. Otherwise, yeah. it was pointless. You know, mm-hmm. so. I remember like. uh you know, the kids in the school had beepers and then it got to the point where like you could uh, where you'd beep and it would do like the text message on the beeper screen. You right, know? Yeah, an like, alphanumeric. It went yes. just like an alpha or a, just a numeric. Then it the, the next advancement was the whole alphabet was available, like like yeah. Twitter. You had like 120 <laughs> characters on your beeper and they increased by like three times the size to be able to do that. Oh, boy. Yeah, they were insane. Huge. <laughs> But yeah, they were they were a thing. They were a thing that existed, and Jen had one. Uh, now she calls into the office uh, to learn that McDonald has regained consciousness. So um, yeah, I guess the rogue is not a good shot. And so let's head back to the hospital. Now, after a few self-depreciating niceties, McDonald confirms that uh, he did trigger the alarm right after he was shot. So 4:12 a.m., which as luck would have, it was the exact, ta- exact same time of day that McDonald's son, Ken Jr., was born. So I guess we could probably assume that McDonald Sr.'s name is also Ken, maybe? Don't know. Okay. Maybe the mailman's name is Ken. I don't uh, yeah, know. Yeah, who, kn- who knows? The mailman, <laughs> the milkman, the TV repairman. The, yeah. Mm-hmm. There was no Amazon man back then, but you never know. Um, and I, I wonder if if uh, Ken Sr. has the same fondness for Vienna sausages as his son. I, yeah, yeah. It's, it's hard. They, they, these are questions. These are questions that are not answered by the end no. of the issue. 
These so. are these will remain mysteries, and maybe yes. we'll find out. We will work our way through, but uh, neither of us will hold our breaths. Um, now, while Jen chats up Mrs. McDonald, Gabe has a revelation. Jen then gets a call from Miss Bliss. She's back at the gallery asking our quartet about the Marks murder. And uh, none of them have an alibi in our quartet. You know, we have Jorkins, we have Claire, Clarissa, Clarice, whatever her name is, Roe and Wynn. Uh, Bliss thinks that she's cracked this case wide open. And she invites Jen to be there when she starts dropping bombshells, to which Jen says she would not miss it for the world. And so next we know we're back at the Blakemore. Bliss claims to have gone through the police records for Roe, Wynn, Claire, and Jorkins, and all of them come back mostly clean. Well, except for one of them, Jorkins. You see, Jorkins once did some time for dealing dope, and he actually used to, uh, to smuggle it in some gimmicked picture frames. And Jorkins is like, yeah, that was true, but it was a long time ago. He says he's, play- he's paid his debt to society, uh, and he's clean now. You know, it's, he's not about that anymore. Bliss and Simons then produce further evidence, a 45 that was found at Jorkins' apartment. Now, our authenticator refuses to say anything more without a lawyer, but well, it's not going to come to that. You see, it's time for Gabe to float his theory. He suggests that the literal framer, uh, Jorkins, that is, is being framed. Bliss sighs and asks Gabe to continue. And, uh, well, dear listener, you have all the information you need to solve the case right now. Can you solve it? So Gabe starts to do the thing that, you know, old timey detectives do. They walk around a room and talk as though they're thinking out loud about all the suspects. I mean, that's as tropey as it gets. First, he talks about Claire Issa. Um, She threatened legal seizure of the paintings, at which time they would have to be appraised, right? But our thief could not allow that to happen. Can't get those things appraised because, well, we'll get there. He then reminds us that only three minutes had passed between the time that McDonald was shot and that the police arrived on the scene. Rose show had six paintings, all of which appeared to have been deframed. But that would not be physically possible to do without damaging them. That is in three minutes anyway. Gabe then poses the question to Bliss regarding how these legit paintings could have been deframed. She assumes it's you know, it's elementary. Those frames were gimmicked by Jorkins. He's, you know, I mean, pattern of behavior is there. Gabe ain't buying it. He is certain that Jorkins has been set up to take the fall here. After all, if he already had access to the originals, why would the forger need to be involved at all? Gabe suggests that the framed paintings were, in fact, the forgeries. Remember... Claire put her legal claim in for them, which, upon receipt, would have led to them being appraised and authenticated. And if they were phonies, that would not be good. At this point, our man Wynn becomes enraged, outraged by the suggestion. And Roe is, maybe he's stoned. He's just confused. Uh, yeah. Roe, he's, he's like, I'm supposed to be in bed right now. He is just confused. 
Uh, Gabe suggests that whoever was responsible for this substitution came back to the gallery after hours in order to make the swap and cover their tracks. And also, whoever did it was willing to risk murdering someone to do it. But who done it? Well, was it Claire? No. No, but her legal pursuit, right, is what set this plan into motion. Of course, that's not by any fault of her own. Was it Roe? Nope. There's no way he'd knowingly exhibit forgeries in his first big show back in the spotlight after a decade away, right? Was it Wynn? Well, Gabe seems to think so. You see, Gabe posits that he'd commissioned the forgeries from Dauber Marks. But when Claire attempted to exercise her legal right to the work, he kind of freaked out, knowing that he'd have to replace the phonies with the originals before they went into her possession. Wynn obviously denies this. Gabe's cool and collected, though, and he asked if it would be cool if Miss Bliss searched Wynn's apartment. Roe then asked Wynn if any of this is true. And Wynn reveals that, uh, well, uh, yeah and no. He admits that, yes, he did have Dauber Marks make copies upon learning that the rogue was targeting Roe's work. You see, he did it to protect them both. Gabe's all, yeah, nice try, pal, reminding everyone that they'd only found out about the rogue's threat a few scant hours before the show. And that's not nearly enough time for even the finest and quickest forger to perfectly recreate six paintings. And when he tires of this and he proceeds to finally come clean. But first, he, I mean, credit where it's due here, he does say Rose's work is garbage. <laughs> and he's right. It's really bad. It's bad, yeah. <laughs> now, he cites that it's so bad that Roe himself didn't even realize that he was looking at forgeries, which, yeah, it's a pretty sick burn. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's true. We, we actually saw that. So, yeah, mm-hmm. you, you got it. <laughs> now, Wynn was hoping to sell the forgeries at the show and then sell the originals to some private collectors on the sly. But then then Claire came in with her legal docs and her bravado and just threw a wrench into the whole thing. Now, if this were to get out, Wynn would lose his license and credibility in the art world. Now, addressing the frame situation, Wynn admits that he unframed the legit art weeks ago. He attempted to recreate Jorkin's framework, but couldn't. And so he had to resort to using the original frames on the forgeries. He'd hoped to do the old switcheroo after the exhibit, but hey, you know, the alarm sounded and he panicked. He just swapped out the paintings without reframing them. Miss Bliss goes to take Blackmore for questioning at the precinct, but Jen's not quite done with him yet. Because we still got one question left, right? Uh, If, uh, you know, Wynn did this, uh, who sent the threats from the rogue? To which our man Rose, like, well, Wynn was probably the rogue, right? Well, no, he denies it. Uh, But let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Jen says that Blakemore did not send the threats because, uh, you know, before Claire pulled those legal strings, he didn't know he'd have to steal the paintings back. Right. He was remember he was trying to double dip. So stealing them wouldn't do him any good. So the answer to who sent the threats was Roe himself. You see, he stood to benefit the most from the free publicity his opening would garner from this. Roe denies this again, pointing the finger at Wynn. Now, Gabe, he uh, he's with Roe here. He suggests that, you know, uh, sure, Wynn stole the paint. Oh, he's he actually is. You know, he doesn't think Wynn is the rogue here. He says Wynn stole the paintings, but he's not the rogue. And Jen doesn't agree. Wynn is the rogue. He just didn't send the threats. So we have a little bit of a, a confusing situation here. Wynn is the rogue 
but he didn't send the threats because again after all he didn't he didn't he knew not to be worried because he was the rogue he knew those those threats that were coming in were false because he didn't send them Wynn then comes clean lashing out at Roe for the phony threat he'd made threats that uh, Wynn couldn't even deny as it would have given him away as the real deal rogue Wynn is then cuffed and taken away Miss Bliss thanks our heroes for their help, and uh, Gabe ain't taking it too well. You see, he feels kind of foolish about being wrong about the rogue, and he begins to, you know, start doubting his prowess at detectiving. Jen tells him it was a team effort, that without the point he raised about the Marks murder, she never would have been able to piece the rest of it together. And I'm guessing she's just saying that to try to spare his feelings, but uh, we'll allow it. And uh, we wrap up with our heroes walking arm in arm, ready for their next case. So that was the first issue of the Maze Agency here. Um, how, how did how did you like the big reveal here? They they did give us everything in the book that they used yes. to prove their point. Mm-hmm. Um, there there was a a logic. Logic, not really logic, but I'll I'll go with that. There was a a logic leap or two Mm -hmm. in the story. Yeah. But it was those same leaps that they used at the end to wrap it up. So I, you know, ultimately, I guess that's okay because everything was supposed to be in the story to allow you to come to the same conclusion that they did. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, A lot of of, uh, coincidences that happened. Um, simultaneous occurrences, you know, it's like, well, Mm -hmm. in in order for you to get from A to Z, LMNOP had to all be back to back. Well, unfortunately, (laughs) they were. Yes. (laughs) So it's like, okay, all right. You know, they only have so many pages to work with. Um, You know, they're they're not directing this at the hardcore logic problem solving type of reader necessarily um so i i think all in all um uh, mission accomplished i guess i think that's fair i think that's fair here and i think it'll be interesting as we get more and more uh familiar and re-familiar with uh bar's storytelling that maybe we're going to start to pick up on these things a little bit better and may, or at least me maybe i'll be able to figure this stuff out oh yeah no no i was yeah i was <laughs> like i said I understood why or not why, but how Mm -hmm. frames would be gone and paintings were left. Sure. I'm like, well, obviously there was a switch where the originals had been taken somehow previously Mm -hmm. and they didn't have the time given the 30 minutes. So they took the fakes and brought the originals back that they already had. To me, I was like, okay, yeah, I got that. But like I said, everything else about it, I, I didn't make all the other connections. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like um, we had like, uh, you know, when you're doing an experiment that isn't controlled, <laughs> it feels like okay. things can kind of get away. Yes. It's kinda, like, like when you when you crack an egg into a uh, frying pan for the first, you know, right away, it kind of spreads out. And like you might be there with the spatula trying to keep it round and it just gets away from you. I feel like the first half of the story was, you know, the, the egg was perfectly round. You know, and then we get into like dauber marks. It's like, how did we get here? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. We gotta. If this wasn't New York City, where you gotta imagine there are probably thousands of artists, easily tens of thousands of artists. How do we have this one guy 
this one forger is going to be the guy. It just yeah, the, yeah, very, the same one. Yeah. Yeah, very convenient. Um, again, it did make the story work, so uh, we will we will allow it. But um, uh, overall thoughts on you know not just the mystery aspect, but uh, characters and uh, you know introducing our cast here. I don't know if we're gonna see like Simons and Bliss again. I, I'm assuming we will, but I mean I don't know how much of a part they're gonna play. But how do you feel about meeting our cast here, meeting this, being introduced to this world? How do you, how do you like it? There, there is both a, um, a b- room to expand, but also a, a fullness as as to what was needed mm-hmm. uh, by way of the different types of characters for this particular story. Sure, sure. So I, I, I thought it was a good balance of, well, these are the pieces we need right now, but these are the places that we will be able to introduce other pieces, um, mm-hmm. either that we have planned or if we need to later. Absolutely. I, I thought that was well, well done uh, by I, I'm going to assume uh, Barr. I, I really don't think that Adam Hughes probably had a whole lot of input yet in the actual writing of the stories. I think you're right. Yeah. Maybe, you know, maybe something down the road when these two work together and they build up that trust. But, yeah, at this point, I would imagine that most of the actual direction of the story is uh, Mike Barr's. So I, I think he did a, a good job of. Uh, setting everything but then leaving room for uh future insertions future we'll remember back at issue one and and Mm. things like that and and i like that uh the interpersonals here were kind of nuanced where like you get the you get the impression that the 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 police are like begrudgingly working with the pis right it's like it's like they're not exactly friends here like bliss wanted to show up jen real like hey get over here i'm about to crack this thing open you yeah need to see i'll this. show you yeah it's like there is this uh a little bit of like a soft animus uh between the two and i like that it's not like a huge like you know and they're not scratching at each other they're not cursing each other out it's it's subtle it's it's like a competitive um rivalry right and we've got gabe here who i mean if a if a police officer is looking at gabe doing his stupid walking around the room like he's uh you know dick tracy or some sort of uh or charlie chan i guess it's yeah. like oh look at this guy go oh come on stop so it's like they kind of just dismiss him and it's like okay yeah, do your spiel talk talk and i i like that it's not like a they're not just they're not just telling him to get out of there and they're not telling him he's got no reason to be there they're also not fawning all over him it's like all right do your thing you're here for it. Do it. I, I think it's really good interpersonals here. We get a little bit of information about some some fella named Arthur, who I'm guessing will play into uh, into some of the relationships later on, and I'm looking forward to that. It's a uh, it's just really, you know, when you looked when I looked at the cover of this, I assumed, and I think maybe it had to do with my conflating it with Moonlighting, that that Jen and Gabe were gonna be not not so much rivals, but um, more of like a will they won't they mm-hmm. you know whereas because that was kind of the whole hey, anybody who's familiar with moonlighting that's like kind of the thing that sunk the show right it's like you had all these years of them will they won't they and then they finally did and people were done with it right yeah yeah so that it's like oh well yeah it's like well we saw it it's over 
So I think I was expecting something like that, but it's like, no, no, they actually do care about each other right away. They, you know, they go out on a date here. They, they might, you know, further their relationship, but there's something in the way, but it's not like they don't like each other. So I think upon revisiting this, that, that kind of surprised me most of all. I think I was expecting them to be a little bit more uh, butting of heads between our two stars here. So seeing that it wasn't that way was, uh, was pretty interesting, but in any event, uh, I'm certainly looking forward to more of this and uh, really good story. Uh, definitely, if you can get your hands on this, um, I, I probably we probably should have looked up if there were places you could find this. <laughs> I don't know if you can anywhere. My comic shop has all the issues of this first volume except for issue 12 for whatever. Oh, reason. excellent. Excellent. Yeah, I don't know if it's uh, if it's available anywhere legitimately digitally, but uh, uh, maybe one of these days it'll it'll be on comiXology or whatever whatever we're calling comiXology these days i think a lot of that's up in the air but uh it's a fun story it's a and i think it's going to be a very fun series and we hope you join us for it but while the story's done the book ain't we got more pages to look at here now the first one is uh, our letters page here it's not really a letters page but it's kind of a letters page it'll eventually be the letters page and it's called from the desk of jennifer mays and rather than letters, since this was, you know, the first issue, we have a missive from Mike W. Barr about how the Maze Agency is a series that he's had in mind for quite a while now. Now, he can trace the this kernel of an idea back to a day in September of 1967, back when he was a high school freshman. Now, he and some friends made their way into a local bookstore during their lunch hour. Now, his pal was an avid sci-fi fan, but uh, that genre never really appealed to him. At least not in prose form. Uh, Barr was a big fan of DC's Adam Strange, who appeared in the pages of Mystery in Space, often by Gardner Fox and John Broome. Now, while on this particular outing, Barr wound up grabbing a copy of the Roman Hat Mystery by Ellery Queen. And uh, you mentioned Ellery Queen earlier. Uh, Do you have any familiarity with any of uh, Queen's uh, long-form work? Honestly, not off the top of my head. I (laughs) may have read something... um, when I was younger, mysteries, mm-hmm. uh, mystery novel, detective writings are – and I don't mean this in a bad way, but they were a phase that I went through when I was reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that, I, I merely mean that as at a particular age, I read them for a period of time, and sure. I have not really gotten back to that type of writing since then. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But no, I, I don't have any personal – uh, that I can recollect a uh, personal experience with it. And, and since most mystery fiction doesn't have pictures in it, I haven't checked out much of it. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. now, uh, now mystery was not a new genre for Barra. His mother was a big fan of the televised Perry Mason program. Um, he just hadn't done much reading of mysteries at this point, though he does claim that he enjoyed the saint by Leslie Charteris uh, now, Barr refers to this as more of an adventurer than a detective story. I, I have never read it, so uh, I'll take his word for it. Have you, are you familiar with The Saint? I know that there was a TV series starring Roger Moore, I believe. That sounds familiar. I believe he was The Saint, and that may have been during the maybe the black and white era of television. That sounds I, I, familiar. But that, that is all I, I know that, you know, that character exists, mm-hmm. but the Roger Moore kind of connection is really the only knowledge I have of of any part of the Saints history. 
Gotcha, gotcha. Now, um, this Ellery Queen novel really got to Barr, and it led him down a rabbit hole of, well, not only further Queen novels, but into detective fiction wholesale. Uh, he names uh, Rex Stout, Marjorie Allingham, and uh, Anthony, Bouch- Anthony Bouchard. Boucher? One of those. Uh, now, he would become something of a detective fiction historian, and he wondered why there weren't comic books that told these kind of stories. And I mean, there, there, there is a book called Detective Comics, but it's very seldom about, uh, <laughs> yes, that's, yeah. about this sort of a thing. Um, now, Barr would begin mailing detective stories to Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, which was edited by Frederick Danny. And, uh, well, you know, he would get rejection after rejection after rejection. That is, until 1973, when he'd finally make his first sale. Now, his story would appear in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, May 1973 issue, and his name is even on the cover. And, I mean, his name is on the same cover as Isaac Asimov. So, I mean, that's not a bad way to be in your first written uh, pro work, right? Uh, Uh, That's kind of made, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, his story was called Crime at the Comic Convention, all one word. Um, now, wasn't able to track this thing down online, but I think you might have had uh, some better luck, huh? Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, a little while back when we uh, discussed this and, and you told me you pointed me at some other sources for some information, I I read this and thought, well, it's got to be. <laughs> it's on the Internet somewhere. I just yes. have to ask the right way. I just have to find it. <laughs> um, so a little bit of searching. I did track down an actual copy of Mm -hmm. this particular issue of the Ellery Queen magazine. Um, Apparently, they have taken my money for it, and apparently they have sent me a shipping (laughs) notice. So I should have it on the way. Um, Fantastic. Now, you know, I I say those because, well, just we know how things go. Um, This is true. And also, you know, there there is the question of the state of, of the overall postal service um, in our country right now mm-hmm. if not the world as a whole True. so uh, we you know we'll we'll get more excited when i actually see it <laughs> yes when you have and, it in and your hands i'm i'm particularly interested to see if you know i know mike barr as a comic book writer now at this yeah. point in his career he was not no but but yet the title of this story is comic convention you know i'm I'm just there's a lot of commonalities here that i'm wondering if sure. in my mind they really connect up the way it seems so i'm really curious to read this uh this story and see what it's about absolutely and you know uh taking it a step further here uh well it's about a detective duo and stop me if this sounds familiar um a woman named carol ashwin who's the head of ashwin investigations incorporated and Gardner Frost, Karen's boyfriend and co-worker. Hmm. Huh. Sounds familiar. He know. should pitch that for TV. I think that yeah. would work. <laughs> so uh, I wonder if this is like Maze Agency negative uh, one, right? Yeah. Uh, the, is... the precursor to the first time of the thinking initially of the. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, Barr would sell a second Ashwin Frost story for his hometown Beacon magazine supplement in the Akron Beacon Journal. This uh, made print on September 4th, 1977. Now, it was around this time where Barr took a non-writing staff job with DC Comics. You see, he wanted to pursue mystery stories, but DC and Marvel both were not interested in non-superhero fare at this time. 
He was also a prolific letter hack, and he received his first freelance DC writing gig from Julius Schwartz back in 1973. Now, this would be in Detective Comics issue 444, January 1975 cover date, and this was in the 100-page giant era, so Bars was just one of nine stories to appear. It wasn't a Batman story, it was an elongated man in a story called The Magical Mirror Mystery with art by Ernie Chan. And the issue would be headlined by a Len Wein, Jim Aparo bat story. So pretty good company to be in for your first comics writing gig, right? I mean, that's a that's a you know right up there with the Asimov mention. It's pretty good, pretty good. Now Barr's second freelance gig would appear in Detective Comics issue 453. This was November 1975 cover date, and it's another elongated man backup called The Case of the Reverse Pickpocket, and this one had art by Sergio Garcia. Now, after a few years on staff, Barr would become an editor in 1979 and then return back to freelancing in 1981. And then, I mean, not to talk about his DC stuff here, the independence began popping up as something that he noticed here. And in an issue of Eclipse magazine, Barr would see a Miss Tree strip. That's Ms. Tree, I guess, by a future wild dog creators, Max Collins and Terry Beatty. And, uh, well, he cited this as being the sort of story he wanted to be writing in comics. And so here we are, several years down the road with the Maze Agency from Kamiko. And uh, Barr plans for every issue of the Maze Agency's first year to be one and done. So we're not going to have long, uh, long story arcs to start. And, I mean, I don't know that we ever will. For all I know, they're all going to be one and done with just a little bit of connective tissue. But in any event, hey. We're here for it. I think this is going to be a good time. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, Barr's trajectory through uh, through fiction, through writing, through fandom to to get where he was in uh, wherever we are in 1988? That seems like um, it is a pretty common trajectory, uh, particularly at this time. For sure. That it is a fan um, who – more than likely read comics Mm -hmm. and through some aspect of writing, whether it be a fanzine or, and, and I resent the, by the way, the potential implication that being a letter hack was in some sort, some way fake or that they didn't mean those letters that I, I take personal offense at that. (laughs) Uh, And then they would get, you know, I don't know. It was it, uh, is it Kurt Busick that started in the mail room? Yes. Uh, for mm-hmm. for Marvel, I think. So, yeah, you know, they would get in like fanfare, I think. Yeah. Yeah. They would get or in some, and then yeah. they would start doing something, maybe an office job. And then they'd work their way up and through and write and draw and whatever. Nowadays, we seem to have a lot more other um, other uh, types of creatives that that. Mm-hmm play or become comic book writers they are a novelist or they write for tv or movies or yeah. you know something of that nature for sure um, so for sure. Th- there's a lot more of that happening but in in the um as a as a friend of mine says in the way back uh, <laughs> it was very much the fan through the door to the creator kind of avenue that they that they travel yeah. i think so yeah it's uh it was the destination. The destination was uh, was being a comics professional, where I think nowadays it's the, the stepping stone or the fallback. Uh, yeah, yeah the, the fallback. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> while I'm waiting for this, what else can it? Well, you can write a comic book. Yeah. So 
Exactly. And, and we can say you're from you. You you wrote an episode of Entourage. And, uh, yes. <laughs> but yeah, I think this is a, a really cool story for uh, for Barr here. And like you said, this is I, I think I mentioned this off the air. I don't know if I mentioned it on the air, but this whole era, this whole just time in comics is one that I am very jealous that I wasn't a part of. It's like I have this odd nostalgia for a time that I never was really around. Um, and I mean, I, I, I did come in during a fairly exciting time in the business, but this is where the seeds were kind of planted for the explosion that I was there for. And I feel like everything from this period has this earnestness to it. You know, these were like, I'm sure I'm sure Barr and I mean, I'm projecting here, but I'm sure Barr wanted this to be successful. And I'm sure he wanted to make money off of it, but I don't think that was the driving motivating factor for it. I think this is just a story he really wanted to tell. This was just a genre he really wanted to explore. I feel like it has a real blue collar sort of feel to it. It's very earnest. And I feel like a lot of those a lot of the 80s, the black and whites, uh, this is a color book, but I mean, the black and whites that came out throughout the mid 80s here, there's there's this this real workmanship to it. This It's just something it's hard to put into words, but it's very special. And uh, I, I, I do both want to agree with <laughs> you and to a large extent agree with you, <laughs> but I do want to hedge by saying that it is very possible that my my belief, mm-hmm. much like what you're espousing is your belief, is my romanticization of what actually was occurring. Could be. Could very I, I will, well be. You know, I will admit that that is possible. I certainly hope that's not the case mm-hmm. because, yeah, it seems at th- that there was a point in time, um, and, and I'll say it, prior to now, when <laughs> – there was a lot more emphasis put on the desire to create yeah, rather than the desire to be rewarded for your creating. Yes. Uh, it's very just to be, to be nice about it. Um, <laughs> and a lot of times that will come across in your creation. Um, <laughs> I believe that I can, I, I just can feel that um, at times for books of this era, no, I didn't feel that way. I felt that it was a money grab. Sure. Okay. I mean, you know, that's going to happen. Um, and, and I, I think I'll say though, that much as the era that you were talking about, that, that we spoke offline was your golden age, that early to middle nineties. Yeah. What I, I think in a lot of ways, the impact that, that, um, the the change of philosophy that we saw then, the impact that it is having or has had on what we see now is as uh, much as the impact of this late, very late 70s, early to mid 80s, just blossoming of more than just two or three or four comic book publishing companies. Yeah. Um, and, and now this has been long ago enough. What, what is that? 1981, let's mm-hmm. say this is 21. That's what? 40 years. Yep. yep. Right. These, 
books that this time frame in particular, these books that we're talking about are coming back into vogue because people um, potentially uh, the, the age of yourself, definitely my age, we are in that fondly remembering time of life. And this is where we go, sure. you know, 40 to 50 years ago. And so a lot of these creators, a lot of these books, a lot of these companies are kind of coming back, I think, into vogue as far as not just people wanting to talk about it, but people actually talking about it. True. You know, Very there's true. a lot more interest in Kamiko in mm -hmm. Eclipse Comics and First Comics, definitely in the creators, because a lot of the creators that unfortunately we are starting to lose now mm -hmm. really became a part of things then. So Certainly. in all of this, you know, all of this retrospective that unfortunately we're having to engage in, this is where we're going back to their first work at or their indie company that they started before and, and things like that. So I, I think over the next little while, as as people uh, my age in particular start speaking more in the in the um, fandom, mm -hmm. these books, these companies, these creators will start to be discussed more. And I think we will be right near the forefront of doing so by talking about May's agency right now. I think you're right. I definitely think you're right. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to step down off of my box now. <laughs> I'll quiet down. No, no, for sure. I mean, it's um, this is a, a very special book from a very special time, and and I think your point is very well taken. There might be some some rose-colored glasses there for sure, because I mean, we still need to remember that this is post Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So <laughs> there, there was a. Uh, now they were legit in what they did, but sure. I think th they their gaze quickly was turned, and, and the wave that they that they came in on kind of kind of swept over and, all and huge swath of the huge. And I'm not trying to disparage against that. There is nothing wrong. Oh no, not at all. You know, these men came up with a concept, and people were waiting in line with mm -hmm. stacks in their hands, saying, "Hey, can we?" Well, of course they said yes. I mean, mm -hmm. come on. Oh, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. No, no. But I, I think uh, a lot of people saw that as like, oh, they did it. So uh, I'll do it, too. <laughs> right. I want to do it. I can do it. Look how easy it was, which yes. if you know anything about what those men went through, that is not the not case. Easy. And no. any number of creators nowadays would tell you, uh, no, that's not the case. But yeah. OK, <laughs> and, and, and we, we, we must have done something right in that we made it look easy, you know, kind For of sure. like the athletes. There. Yes, so, absolutely. Yeah. And the Ninja Turtles actually had to compete with gymnastics that uh, that first uh, time out. Uh, I don't know if you listened to the gymnastics episode of the Cosmic Treadmill. Um, <laughs> it's an indie book that uh, was launched or announced at the same comic convention as Ninja Turtles. And uh, the fellow who uh, wrote and drew gymnastics was like, if only <laughs> if not for those turtles. <laughs> it, there you go. He was that close. He was so close. <laughs> yep. Not for those damn turtles, but, uh, <laughs> but we have some uh, some back matter to discuss now for this issue. Uh, we have the Kamiko Blimp, which is um, kind of like a bullpen bulletins of sorts. And here we have a letter that uh, the editor in chief, Diana Schultz, wanted to include in every book that they received that month here. It has nothing to do with the Maze Agency, but it is an interesting little um, little timepiece here. 
It's a letter from a fellow named Ken in Dallas, Texas. Now, this is a response to a letter that appeared in Grendel number 21 in regards to a reply that stated that Kamiko has, quote, no intention of policing anyone's sales. Now, Ken takes a little bit of issue with this, claiming that, well, you must be 18 years or older to subscribe to the Grendel mag. However, any kid can simply wander into their local comic shop and pick it up without an issue, without any problem. He asks Kamiko to reconsider their policy, which, you know, is, is someone in the subscription department checking IDs? Yeah. yeah I mean, this is like a, there was a, a show. What was it? Um, Grounded for Life was a sitcom back in turn of the century. And uh, one of the kids on the show uh, was calling, you know, 976 numbers. And, and he called it. And like the first thing he said, like, it's like, if you're, you know, if you're over, this is for anybody over 18. And he's like, oh, I got to hang up. And his friend is like, if you can press one, you're over 18. You know, it's like, just you, you say you're over 18. You're fine. Go get your Grendel subscription here. Um, now, Kamiko EIC, Diana Schultz replies to this concern by stating that, you know, as a responsible publisher, they want to adhere to their parental guidance advisory. And she makes sure to say that Grendel creator Matt Wagner is in agreement with this as well. She says, quote, Grendel contains themes that some parents may deem inappropriate for their children. Consequently, we ask that those parents take some responsibility for guiding their children's reading materials. Since the federal government dictates, admittedly arbitrarily, that 18 is the age of consent, which I I don't know if we want to fight that, um, it follows that Kamiko can sell Grendel without parental consent to those 18 and older. In fact, these people constitute the primary audience for the book. And she speaks on the uh, retailers, claiming that each retailer is pretty much responsible for their own actions, and there really isn't a whole heck of a lot that a publisher can do about that. Um, what are your What are your thoughts here about uh, <laughs> about this? Okay, um, in in uh, complete transparency here, I will say that I am the father of uh, two sons, one twenty five and one twenty seven at this point. <laughs> And I wholeheartedly concur with the comment, consequently, we ask that those parents take some responsibility for guiding their children's (laughs) reading materials. I think anything said before or anything said after doesn't matter. (laughs) That, in my mind, is the phrase, not the key phrase, but the phrase. Yes. And so <laughs> th- there you go. Close the book, put it back on the shelf that, you know, we're, we're done learning. This is the point. Uh, the, the, the entire <laughs> class was built around this. You got it. You graduate. Good. <laughs> Absolutely. It's yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of a weird thing because, uh, you know, it, going to just like the the retailer portion of it. Because, I mean, that is something that a, a, a publisher can't can't do anything about. But, you know, when, when a kid brings home something, a parent should maybe take a look at it. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't have any children yet, but uh, if they happen to be there, uh, take that second and peruse it before they even leave the store with it. Before they buy it. Yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. You know, now <laughs> that being said, of course, there is, you know, there is all kinds of opportunity for Parents to not have that um, that opportunity, um, perhaps early enough in in the process. Okay, but 
with involvement, that opportunity will occur uh, certainly more often than not. Mm -hmm. And so uh, involvement (laughs) is the, you know, show show the interest. Oh, yeah, what like, have you been reading? Yeah, what, what have you been reading? You know, what, yep. Yeah, what do you like? What what's going on? We, you know, it's yeah. And we and we, we see all these uh public service commission things about, you know, the parents and, and it it always comes off as kind of spoofy, you know, they they always sure. make light of it. But it um okay. I I I I already pushed the soapbox off to the side. I'm, I'm not gonna step back up on it. But it it can be a very important um aspect. Or no, it is a very important aspect mm-hmm. of the the time that you spend as a parent, that being the amount of time you're involved with what your children are actually doing. Certainly. Certainly. I, and I would just, you know, that is where that that is why your children turn out like you are with your values and your belief system and you know so if if either side of that equation is important to you well then then you will you will get the other side of the equation mm-hmm. so you know and and that's that's my thoughts on it i'm sure there are people that disagree but you know oh yeah i mean it's it's you know it's one of those it's it could be a very contentious subject for sure um unfortunately i don't yet have a dog in that fight <laughs> i don't have any children just yet we are working on it so maybe one of these days but uh yeah i i definitely believe that uh parents ought to be a part of uh yeah any aspect of their children's lives here and of course there are situations where you maybe you're working a couple of jobs maybe you're yeah, time is time yeah so, I there's mean, there's all, it, kind, all kinds of things that are, are part of that. That get in the way. Yeah. yeah. That that add and subtract from. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. So it's not like a black and white thing. But, uh, you know, if you if you do see like a uh, copy of a uh, cherry pop tart on the uh, floor Ooh. of your son's room, uh, it's not an Archie comic. I, I was going to go with heavy metal. But uh, OK, <laughs> that's yeah, like another your, one. That is another. I, I like your it, cherry pop tart. Yeah. You know, it's. My, with with me growing up, um, my mom never really thought of comics as being anything that could be explicit, okay. which may just be a generational thing, right? She had the the Archie and the hot stuff and the sure the little Casper Lulu or and, yeah, yeah, little Lada. Okay. It's like so. I, my first comic here, if you listen to shows on this network, um, ElfQuest. That's how I came into it, and uh, you know, one of the jokes that me and Chris Bailey make on that show is like, "Yeah, we're going to get to the orgy pretty soon." That's, oh, yeah, pretty soon, but eventually. But there I, are parts of that that could be objectionable. Adult, certainly. sure, adult yeah. or more mature. There is violence in it, right? But um. My mom never really thought anything about it, and uh, not that's not to say she was detached or uninvolved. It's just like it was a comic book. So how bad can a comic book be? You bought this in a comic store. Somebody sold it to you. Exactly. So it's like how bad can it be? But at 7.30 at night when I wanted to watch Beavis and Butthead, she's like, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. No, we're not watching that. That's not going on in my house. It's, 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 it's weird I, where you draw the line. It's – it's an interesting thing. But uh, yeah, enough about that. Um, we have a little bit of hype here. This is uh, kind of the uh, the Mighty Marvel previews or Mighty Marvel checklist here, but it's uh, for Kamiko. And uh, I like this here because we have actual dates where books are supposed to hit. And um, 
I, I like this for a few reasons because, you know, this was a different time in comics here. Previews wasn't a consumer item at this point. You know, you didn't get a previews catalog at your comic shop. The comic shop got one, but they didn't get the ones for you. You know, so you couldn't look through a preview and be like, okay, on December 6th, these books are coming out. December 13th, okay, these books are coming out. You didn't have that opportunity here. So, and in in the Marvel and DC checklists, all you got was a list. It's like, okay, coming out in December, here's 50 books. You know, you don't know which ones are coming out. And of course, this is the late 80s. So we're still dealing with newsstands. We're still dealing with the pharmacies. We're still dealing with 7-Elevens. You might not get your book and you might not realize you don't get your book until the next one comes out. So here with Kamiko, they actually given us dates. So on December 6th, 1988, we got four books. We got the Kamiko Christmas special, which I want to see. I, I have a fondness for Christmas comics. I always pick them up if I see them. So I, I want to keep an eye out for this one. We also have Fish Police number 14, Grendel number 26 and Justice Machine number 24. Justice Machine. I, this is a book that I, I heard a lot about, and I tried reading it. I found it in a discount bin, and I, I did not care for it. Do you have any familiarity with Justice Machine? As this was the first book that one of my all-time favorite books, The Elementals, first appeared mm-hmm. in, um, at the time, no, but within six or eight years of it coming out, so I was I – was, a, a youngish adult by the mm-hmm. time I did finally get to read it. Um, I found Justice Machine, as far as a comic book, probably a little bit too heady for me. Okay. It, it just, it, it, it didn't give me the escapism that I look for even then okay. uh, in comic books because, because it was too serious. Mm-hmm. You know, talking about throwing off of uh i believe a totalitarian regime and and (laughs) escaping it via time dimensional travel but coming back and finding out that your side of the of the uh philosophy lost terribly in the battle yeah I, i was like um i'll stick with my JLA JSA crossover, you know, I just, <laughs> oof. yeah. So, um, even now, I mean, I, mm-hmm. I can read Justice Machine, and um, just a a little tidbit to throw out there: the first four issues of Justice Machine, uh, they came out from a, a different company than Kamiko. Noble, they're comics. magazine size. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's it's really kind of cool. Black and white. Mm-hmm. magazine size um t- t- texas comics maybe I, I forget i'd have to look it up but yeah so that was the original original idea by the creator and mm-hmm. you know it has been distilled now to where it's a what probably a 25 to 30 page color magazine by the sure. time issue 25 finally comes out here so yeah and i'm, I'm looking at the uh, a little blurb on it here and it's not terribly subtle um, they're on the planet Jorwell. <sighs> George Orwell. Uh, well, you know, uh, yeah, it's a okay. little on the nose. Let's be subtle here or <laughs> not. It, yeah. Okay. And uh, the first cover was uh, penciled by John Byrne. So how about that? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting stuff here. 
Now we jump to uh, December twenty third. I'm sorry, December thirteenth. Even we have uh, Ginger Fox number four, Jezebel Jade number three, and the issue we discussed today, Maze Agency number one. So uh, hey, we got a uh, we got an actual date here. Now Ginger Fox and Jezebel Jade feel like books that you probably don't want your mom finding. Talking about I, uh, <laughs> yeah, they they kind of are reflective of the cherry pop tart you mentioned. Um, <laughs> I would assume so. <laughs> Ginger Fox, I don't know, but I can tell you that Jezebel Jade was a character that first appeared in the um oh, it completely left me. Uh the <laughs> little the little boy and Haji and Race Band. Oh, Johnny and, Quest. Yeah, the Johnny Quest book that Kamiko was putting out. Jezebel Jade okay. is a character. I believe she was involved with Race Bannon at some point and uh okay. ultimately got a little mini series. Gotcha, gotcha. I and believe I, that was Jezebel Jade. Yeah, that actually takes us to December 20th, where we have Johnny Quest number 31. Um, we also have Kamiko Attractions number number 16. We have Gumby's Winter Fun Special number one. I hope he made it out of Gumdinger land. Gummy, uh, gummy, yes. Ah. <laughs> and uh, Robotech, the Macross Saga number 34. Yeah, we one of the things that uh, that we kind of revisited during uh, the Moratory Monday show was the Gumby's Adventures in Gumdingerland uh, serial <laughs> that was on mm. the uh, in the uh, Marvel ads, and uh, it's so weird because when we did the first issue of that, it was the first part of uh, the Gumby Gumdinger special, and I was like, I don't think I ever saw the other parts. And uh, it didn't take us long to find the other two. It was uh, like in the next couple of issues. I'm like, I, how do I not remember that these existed? It was very, very weird. But, uh, you know, we have uh, some January hype as well. <laughs> <laughs> January 3rd, 1989 had Grendel 27, Justice Machine number 25. Uh, January 10th, 1989 is Maze Agency number two and Troll Lords number two. Troll Lords look like something I would not care for. I did not like the art style much. If I'm remembering right, it looks um, it looks like one of the books that they were really pushing at this point, and uh, not uh, not something I liked. Yeah, I'm trying to see who uh, if I'm yeah that's that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, not not a not a fan of that. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, January 17th, 1989, had Robotech the Macro Saga 35, and also Sam and Max Freelance Police Special number one. Now, um, Sam and Max, do you have any familiarity with Sam and Max? No, sir, I, I do not. Okay, yeah, they uh, I know them from, like, a, they had an adventure game, like a video game. And I remember people were, people were digging it, people were playing it. It was a... Uh, the graphics on it were really good for the time. It was, it looked kind of like a cartoon, but it, you know, it was still, you know, back in the day, so it wasn't. But uh, I remember feeling really smart when I discovered that it was actually from a comic initially, okay. which is always a, a fun thing to do. And um, we have January twenty fourth, nineteen eighty nine. We have Ribbit number one, and uh, your book here, The Elemental Special number two. Why don't you tell us a little bit? About the elementals. That's another book that I found in the discount bin, and I've never read. So oh. I have the entire set, but I've never read oh, it. Oh, I would definitely recommend reading the book. Um, mm-hmm. It is a creation of Mr. Will, uh, Will, excuse me, Bill <laughs> Willingham mm-hmm. um, from Fables, which at this point most people I think would be familiar with him from the Fables book from DC or from uh, Vertigo. Vertigo. I think that yeah. was from Vertigo. Um, but he 
created, wrote, and drew elementals for a while. Um, mm-hmm. Came out entirely from Kamiko. It came out, there were two 20 plus issue volumes. And then at the end of the second volume, uh, Kamiko as a company was having some issues. Bill just wanted to get away. So he unfortunately ended up selling the um, the IP for Elementals to someone else who really pushed through three issues of a third volume before Kamiko finally gave up the ghost and went under. Oh, um, those three are probably the poorest of any of the Elementals, to be quite honest with you. Four people die. Um, wow. They come back imbued with elemental powers. Mm -hmm. Now, a large part of the initial volume of the book is the how and why they came back and they came back like that. Um, the four element, uh, the, the four elements being the standard earth, fire, wind, and water. Mm Mm-hmm. So each of the four manifests a character, a, a, a power, a superpower uh, sure. grounded in that element. That element. Mm-hmm. Uh, two males, two females. Um, one was pretty avant-garde from the time. It was a young Jewish woman that had died. Uh, one of the characters was a young adolescent boy, um, 12 or 13, I think. The other gentleman was a military veteran, and the other female was – I don't recall anything really outstanding about her background. And Was she a, uh, was she a debutante who fell off a boat? Um, no, that would have been the Jewish girl because she That's got – That's Becky Golden? Okay. She got the uh, water powers. She came gotcha. back gotcha. kind of – greenish bluish and she had webbed fingers and toes okay yeah that's her Could the control. other one would be a uh, morning star a los yes. angeles homicide detective who'd oh okay burned. she was a police detective okay yeah um this elemental special two here that's coming out this january is a bridge between the first volume and the second volume okay okay uh, the, and, the, and, and this goes into the one where Willing, where Billing, the Billingham, Billingham, Bill Willingham yeah. was uh, was just writing uh, for yeah, the second believe, volume. Yeah, the second one, I believe he pretty much well, well, this the special it says written and illustrated, but I I believe the second volume uh, when he started doing that he had turned over the right uh, the artist chores to some other other okay. folks along the way okay. and uh yeah kamiko's publisher andrew rev purchased the property so yeah uh, okay yeah that's one uh, got it if it, it look look up current word <laughs> on andrew rev and you'll find uh our our much esteemed mr liefeld has run afoul of him as well oh boy rev oh. owns the rights to young blood that's him yes. okay that is the same gentleman indeed. oh lordy wow so, it it makes him rather infamous at this point. It yes. sure does. Now, now, one thing about the elementals that um, anytime I did research on them, because I think that's another series that uh, Greg Burgess covered on on the comics you should own uh, Could, page. They, they he Bill Willingham was very um, story a point learning or or uh, speaking about something that was bothering him at the time Um, Mm -hmm. usually of a world regional news type slant so something 
um, that was happening in reality. He was outspoken. Make its, yeah. <laughs> make its way into his stories, and he was very um, y- using that as a as a vehicle to tell the people who are reading his comic book whatever this is that's going on. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, when I started doing my research for Elementals, uh, the things that popped up were. Um, these are weird. Uh, the Elementals sex specials. Okay. Yes. What is it, that? <laughs> it, it is. It is just as it sounds. Okay. Um, that it's an. Uh, there's th- three or four of them, I believe. Um, anthology books. Each okay. book has uh, three or four stories. Mm-hmm. Each story uh, is centered around a character of the Elementals universe. Now, it might not be one of those four main characters. There were several. Okay several peripheral and then there were several farther out in the, in sure. the uh, concentric circle of of uh, degrees of separation gotcha and it would be a story of a sexual nature uh huh. it would be an encounter it would be uh one story i believe was of a uh, an actual succubus trying to tempt one of the characters um but but it was sexually driven stories involving those characters. Yeah, I'm I'm actually I, I googled it, which is uh, I might have gotten me on a watch list. Oh, yeah, I was gonna say, watch out! They know that you looked now. <laughs> and uh, I'm a little sorry that I did. It's um, well, you know, one of them involves dolphin sex. Uh, I'll just I'll I'll throw that out there. Um, mm-hmm. Now I yes, that sounds the. <laughs> The elemental that can control water is female. She oh, boy, has a rela- I, oh, man, I just saw the dolphin. Okay. She has a relationship <laughs> with a were, uh, a were, I believe it's a were dolphin. It's a, it's a dolphin oh. that can change into a human. And that, that is a character in, in the ongoing uh, circles of the elemental universe. And there is a story about a, a union between the two of them, but oh my goodness, basically they made a t-shirt out of it. Dolphin sex. I mean, that's, they made a t-shirt out of it. Well, that's what, you know, so I, now in their defense, <laughs> these are coming out at a time when many companies had found that books of those natures will sell. Will sell for sure. So it, th- those are money grabs. Um, wow. I have read all of the, various elemental books and to be very honest i don't recall there being any reference to those stories anywhere other than in those stories so that's so bizarre they were just money grabs they were not even used afterwards as any kind of reference because you don't i guess you don't want to refer people to those that, to that. might be the appropriate age to get them so you don't you know wow. you don't want to make that connection yeah, the the ad here has um has her with the dolphin. It says, "Who is that girl? Why is her skin green? What is she doing with that dolphin? And where can I get one?" There you you'll, go. You'll be the talk of the beach when you wear this beautiful full colored T-shirt available directly from Kamiko. 100% white cotton, large and extra large. Don't wait. Order now. Only fifteen dollars ninety five cents. Now, I want somebody to admit it, but you know <laughs> somebody has one, even now. You know it. You can also no. get the poster version if you don't want to wear it out. <laughs> you can <laughs> put it next to your Farrah Fawcett. 
There you go. Your Raquel Welch Your Raquel Welch pillowcase. That's it. Oh. But uh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, those are uh, <laughs> the elemental sex specials. Boy, yeah, oh boy. Sex special, yeah. Oh boy. But uh, I now, think. Oh, good. <laughs> I, let me throw out there that they did release other, say, one shots mm-hmm. um, that were much more in line with the rest of the elemental universe so yes, the, those are ghost of a too. chance uh, how the you war know. was won the vampires revenge yes. yeah ghost but, of uh, a chance comes yeah. to mind that's yeah so wowzers yeah that uh, mm, uh it's gonna be a while to shake that one off uh <laughs> so, so, sorry i uh, i led you down that path man I no 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 it was it was my own curiosity <laughs> <laughs> curiosity killed the chris here but uh oh and and, and and by the way just just between you and me if, if you want to read those just let me know i, I can ship you copies i, <laughs> I, I have all the books so yeah. <laughs> so yeah th- th- that's that's you know sex special it was just a money grab no nobody so, read those so, so after they after after maze lighting is over, we'll uh we'll get into the elementals after that. <laughs> <laughs> I need a reason to read them, so <laughs> we'll do that when we get there. Maybe I don't know, but I think that's all we got for uh for this time. I, anything you want to say before we head into uh into the plugs? Um, a cool thing about a lot of those books that you mentioned that are coming out, they have full page ads in at they least do. this issue of sure. uh, Maze Agency that we read. Mm-hmm. So I guess being of the same company, they're like, yeah, we can use a whole page. So it's true. Yeah, there aren't really any ads that are, you know, outside of house ads here. Right. Which is a good thing and a bad thing. I mean, it's always fun to look at some some silly ads from back in the day, but uh, yeah, we don't get those here. It's all it's all the comic stuff. So that is, uh, at least you get to see what you're what you're gonna potentially buy i guess so that's, a, that's a yeah kind thing. of yeah kind of a this is what it looks like at least if yeah sure there's sure. even a book uh that is not mentioned on the inside back cover mm-hmm. um the trouble with girls that wasn't mentioned in any of the upcoming because this is in february that this yeah comes out. yeah and it's also uh it's also by someone we shouldn't talk about it's uh <laughs> yeah he he has had a uh he's had a given time. himself a difficult position in the creative uh community he sure has so um and, and you know it's it's nice that they do the full page ads for these here because uh like you look at the comics nowadays where only like the the same two or three comics get house ads right yeah you know it's like why isn't anybody buying this book well nobody knows it exists <laughs> It doesn't have a, a spider or an Avenger on it. Or yeah, say, or even the the same one or two characters. Yes, is all you get. Yeah, so absolutely. But uh, yeah, I, I believe that we'll uh, do it uh, cover to cover for Maze Agency number one. Uh, do you want to tell the folks where they can uh, track you down? Uh, yeah, probably the easiest way to get in touch with me is on Twitter um, at Teal T E A L Productions. Um, that's probably the quickest way to res- uh, to get me to respond should you have a question <laughs> or a point or whatever you choose to to do. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, you can find me here. I'm, I'm always here. <laughs> this is the place I'm at. Um, and if you want to get a hold of us and talk about the Maze Agency, talk about Kamiko, talk about uh, sex specials, we're, we're, we're here for it. You, you can <laughs> well, read. the first two more than the latter, but OK, <laughs> oh, oh, okay. We'll, we'll do our best. 
We won't discriminate. Uh, you can get a hold of us several different ways. Uh, you can email us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can even call into the hotline here, which I don't even know if I should read the number to that since we just talked about the sex specials. It's uh, 623-396-JERK. Oh, um, oh, my goodness. Okay, yeah. <clears throat> I'm doing the Rodney Dangerfield I over here. I forgot about that. No. Ooh, okay. Full circle. Full, oh Indeed. no, never mind. I'm sorry. Never mind. <laughs> no, you can you can find the complete archives to this channel at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. That's available on all the noise aggregation places. And uh, yeah, I think that's probably about it. You find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, and uh, there's also Facebook groups. I'm easy to find. I'm you know here and everywhere. So, with all that said, I think that's where we'll let you get on with the rest of your day. We'd like to thank you so much for joining us, and we hope that uh, maybe we've opened a few eyes to uh, the Maze Agency, or if the Maze Agency is something that you've already loved, we hope you can take this as an opportunity to uh, to love it again, to revisit it, and uh, maybe go along on the ride with us here. But uh, till next time, as always, uh, we will talk to you again real soon. <laughs>